0: Hey, friends, welcome. Listen, I have heard from so many of you who have said, Sharon, what are we going to do? People don't even believe in facts anymore. And that's why I was so interested to talk about this new book called The Persuaders, because there is somebody who has made a study of this and has written a whole book documenting how people persuade others to believe or do something. And this is a power that can be harnessed for good. So let's dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I'm really excited to welcome Anand to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh my gosh, it's such a joy. I'm such a fan of of what you are doing and the way in which you try to convey complicated and and difficult and sometimes painful triggering issues to people in a way that anybody can understand. It's very much at the heart of what I've been trying to think about over the last few years. Can we Try to reach everyone. And you're really modeling what an everyone approach to, to civic education and, and just talking to people about these issues looks like. So mm. it's, it's great to meet you and great to be on the show with you. Mm.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. And thanks so much for your work too. Can you tell people a little bit more about it? Can you tell people what you've been up to professionally? And then I really want to talk about your book, The Persuaders.
1: Yeah, I am a writer and journalist. I am the American-born son of Indian immigrants. I grew up in suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. I lived in France for a few years when I was a child, then mostly in Washington, D.C., middle school onward. And I had my formative career experience actually moving to India after college. Even though I'd never lived there, I'd visited. And I got some really good advice to that if I wanted to become a writer, a real writer, I should not go someplace that's fun and easy for me, but go someplace that's difficult and challenging. And I had read enough of those kinds of books, particularly the books of V.S. Naipaul, a great travel writer who won the Nobel in literature some years ago, that it's, it's in the encounter with what is difficult, that art and writing grows. And so I, I moved to India. I got a job in business that allowed me to go there for a year. That was an enormous disaster moved on beyond that, got a journalism job that was my dream for the New York Times and ended up being a foreign correspondent in India for the New York Times for the first five years of my career there. And it was this remarkable thing of going to the country that my parents had worked very hard to get out of when I was on the daily show to talk about the book that resulted, John Stewart distilled it perfectly. He was like, so you basically, your parents spent their whole lives trying to come this way. And you were just like, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to go over there.
0: <laughs> this is not what I want. I'm yeah. going back where you tried to leave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. But thanks for all the hard work guys. Um, <laughs> But it was an incredible thing for me because India in the 2000s, when I was a correspondent there, was kind of exploding in possibility. And it was the fact that there was economic growth of a kind that hadn't been seen similar to China. There was real government programs to help the most Indians disenfranchised by the caste system and other things, women, for thousands of years, arriving in an incredibly old society and so I since then have came back to the US, uh, became a columnist for the New York Times instead of a correspondent, and then uh, left that and and now uh, write full-time basically on my books, taking on different topics. I wrote, after the India book, a book about um, hate crime in Texas and uh, hatred and, and an extraordinary act of mercy after 9-11. I wrote a book about billionaires, my third book about billionaires, taking over the world in part by convincing us that they're the only ones who can save us Mm
2: -hmm.
1: from some of the very depredations they have caused. And then the new book, The Persuaders, which is about how we are living in this moment of extraordinary threat to some of the basic ideals that you are so often educating people about in your work of a liberal democracy, constitutional society. And in many ways, I think those things are threatened, not only because there is a dark political movement devoted to very bad things, but also because those of us who actually believe in those things have given up on the idea of persuasion, given up on the idea of changing minds. We have gotten too comfortable writing people off. And so I am, you know, in this moment of my work, but also going back to those to those days in India, really interested in what people are going through when we talk about something like rising fascism or what people are going through when we talk about 40 million americans believing in QAnon, or what people are going through when we talk about a war on women that is being waged those big forces are there the policies are evident the discussion of the machinations of politicians on those things is abundant but i find myself very interested in what is happening in people and with people what is going on with us
2: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. So many people have
0: given up on persuasion, given up on being able to even try to change the hearts and minds of their fellow citizens. There's a deep, deep level of fatalism and cynicism that I see afoot, and I'm sure you have experienced this as well. This sort of like, what is even the point? Like, just burn it all down. Because there's absolutely no point. And that sense of fatalism is very dangerous. That sense of fatalism is what allows, as you mentioned, some of those dark forces to gain traction. That sense of like, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. It creates a crack in the door, creates an opening for other people who think to themselves, well, there's something I can do. If your view is, well, there's something I can do. And other people's like, there's nothing I can do. Guess who wins in that scenario?
1: That's exactly right. And I love, and only because you are like the civic nerd that you are, will I like (laughs) go into the civic nerdery of this for a second. But if you, not to get too like grand about it, but like there have broadly been two ideas in all of human history about how decisions about the future should be made. The lake is rising. The lake is draining. What do we do about the lake? Uh, these people want to be in our community. They're not in our community right now. Should they be in our community? These decisions are as old as time. That got okay, that got not okay, what do we do? People have been faced, communities have been faced with these decisions forever. Most human beings, most of our ancestors for most of time who have ever lived, lived under idea number one about what to do when confronted with these questions about the future that needed to be resolved. And that idea was, it's a lot easier if you just let that one guy, and it was almost always guys, make it, right? Mm -hmm. And certainly the one guys loved that idea and promoted it. But also a lot of people actually believed in that idea. It's too hard. It's too complicated. And a few hundred years ago, which is a very small amount of time ago, idea number two started to rise to the fore, an idea without real basis in Empirics, or in, you know, I mean, there's a reason the American founders like we hold these truths to be self evident. That is what you say when, in fact, there is no scholarship available <laughs> to back your It's po- self evident.
0: It self-evident. It's self evident. I mean... yeah, yeah.
1: I was smoking <laughs> this thing with my friends, and it occurred to me that all men are created equal, endowed by their right, endowed mm-hmm. by their creator. Oh, great. Oh, oh, you can't check that one either, right? No receipts no receipts because <laughs> this was an incredibly radical notion that was actually totally untested and it was the idea that we ought to make the future and we ought to make it in a way that sounds insane if you're not socialized in it the way we all are which is that instead of having one person or you know a small number of people make all these decisions or one person in each little area how about like 300 million people just argue all the time about everything and then we will somehow translate the sum of those arguments into decisions about the future. Mm -hmm. It literally sounds insane and it would be insane if it was not the most successful idea I would argue in the history of civilization. A completely radical idea that That turned out to be right and turned out to not just be just and legitimate, because who the hell is that one guy anyway to tell us, but also turned out to make better decisions, right? Democracies make better decisions, generally speaking.
0: Mm. What are some characteristics that people who you have studied, who you have written about, that people who are excellent at being persuaders, what are some characteristics that they share that perhaps people who are listening can begin to
1: embody? That's such a great question. And that's really what I was after. I was, I was trying to, the people I, and I do this in all my books, I speak to a range of people who, who are not all the same and who are not all doing the same thing. And I try to figure out actually, what are they doing in common? Because I think there may be some wisdom there. In the persuaders that I spent time with over these last few years, I would say there are a few threads. One. Their fundamental view, mental model of who is on the other side, whether it's the distant adversary in national politics, or whether it's their QAnon cousin or climate change denying uncle, their fundamental mental model is different from most of our mental models. Mm -hmm. And their mental model generally is that people are complicated, confused, torn, Grasping for a worldview, almost trying to put an icing of certainty onto a completely porous cake. Mm-hmm. a cake that, in fact has no structural integrity is not as strong and monolithic and robust as it may seem when you cover it in the icing of a confidently stated opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, to use a phrase that i I've heard people say, I think. The persuaders I write about tend to think of many voters and citizens as having strong opinions lightly held. And when you and I and most people see a strong opinion, it's kind of normal to assume that it goes down all the way, right? That a strong opinion is by definition strongly held. Many people do hold strong opinions strongly. Many, many people hold strong opinions lightly. So let me give you some examples. When you think about immigration, an example, a very common strong opinion lightly held, according to a lot of research, is like, we need to strengthen the border. People should only come here legally. We have this crazy problem of people coming over here illegally. That's a strong opinion. It turns out to be quite lightly held because if you ask people, based on their sense of humanity, about different ways of in which people should be treated or about whether people who do X, Y, Z should be subjected to ABC sounds right to them. Suddenly, people start feeling a different kind of thing. In other words, they do have a view that the border is chaotic and we need to clamp down and America's America is for Americans. That's a real view they may have. And they have a view that kids should never be punished for choices their parents make. And they have a view that this country is generous at its heart. They have conflicting, complicated views, as Beyonce says in her new album. They're contradicted, and what most of us do is say, "Ah, oh, you know, there's that border talk again." We just got to organize around those people, And the persuaders I write about think of those people as their clientele. They think about, "I gotta, I gotta get in there." Those people, and this is a phrase that comes out a lot in, in the work of the persuaders, is those people need help with meaning-making. They are seeing their stimuli from the world. They go to Walgreens, they notice more Spanish-speaking cashiers, or they, they hear something on the news. Their kids are coming home saying something about American history or you know, whatever. And it's not automatic that their opinions form and flow and derive inevitably from those stimuli. Meaning-making is the gap. And by the way, it's what your listeners do when they watch your show. They're translating things they've seen. They, they don't need your help to see those things. They're seeing them in their life. What they need help with is like, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. Right. That's why you have an audience. They don't know what it means on its own. Right. That's why we watch things. That's why we read books. And the organizers I'm writing about, the persuaders I'm writing about, think of their first job as meaning-making. And I think if you look at a lot of people who work in politics, they think of policy as being their job, they think of, you know, slogans as being their job. They don't necessarily think of inserting themselves into that really fraught important space, in between the daily life stimuli people are receiving and the more solid story people are forming about what that is. People do not go from noticing more Spanish-speaking people at Walgreens to fearing an alien invasion on the southern border automatically. People don't go from like a one to a ten by themselves. Mm-hmm. Someone is helping them. And I think, frankly, the pro-democracy side, which is the side that I'm writing about in this book, has kind of gotten lazy about meaning-making, in part because it rests on the laurels of a kind of moral righteousness. Like, we want to do the right things. We shouldn't have to explain them to people. So I'd say meaning-making, if I had to pick one concept, is is the biggest. I actually think we're on the verge of not only surviving this era, but building a kind of country that has never existed in history, a kind of country made of people from all over the world, a real multiracial democracy of a kind we have never yet been, and no other country really has been. There's a very good thing for us on the far side of this extraordinary age of disturbance. If we can muster the will and the heart to get there.
0: We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio mode. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible, and then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com Sharon masterclass.com slash it. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others. And some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's hel slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house. And then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that. And it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like people in your houses stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body it was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like lumi and it would take care of the issue it has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. I want to touch on something you mentioned because it's something I've observed as well, which is this idea that in order to be part of our team, so to speak, it's pro-democracy team that is inclusive and inclusive in a variety of ways, pick a lane, inclusive in all those ways, that you must have a certain degree of purity of thought, belief, behavior. And if you're not pure enough, then you're outcast. You are cast out of the movement as being problematic. You're problematic. You made that one YouTube video and I did not like it, what you said in that YouTube video. Whatever it is, pick away that you were problematic in the past. By today's definition, by our standards of purity, you used to be problematic and you are no longer welcome because we must retain our sense of purity. Is something that I have observed that that is a, actually a lack of inclusion in ma- in many ways. That if you have not had purity of heart, thought, mind, behavior in the past, um, and you're not contrite in the right way. You're not welcome. And I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: I think one of the great ironies that you're pointing towards is that some of the least inclusive, most exclusionary movements of our time in terms of what they wanna deliver, the world they seek, have managed to be the most inclusive and come as you are vibe in their attraction of voters and citizens. And some of the most inclusionary, radically inclusionary movements of our time that truly want to build a bigger we can be as movements on the way to getting there exclusionary and gatekeeping and seemingly small hearted. And I want to say first that this is in many ways for a good reason, right? Like, but like I'm a critic of it in this book, but I'm not, I'm not like a critic from the far right. He's like, there's too much wokeness on the left. Like that's not mm-hmm. what I am saying. A lot of the reason for this purity and gatekeeping is that there are a lot more people in the conversation now than were before who are now telling us All the stuff that was making them, their lives painful and narrowed all these years all along that we just didn't hear and accept as the like mainstream truth of the situation. So it's not that women were fine with how things went in meetings 40 years ago, but women of our mother's generation, Who were in those meetings, more often than not, sat through it and didn't have some social media account to go spout on, just didn't have any of a number of means that women now have. And so why is there more calling out and saying that kind of man can't be in the meeting or whatever? Well, it's good in that sense that we now have a lot more women's voice. We have a lot of laws to support those voices, and it has become unacceptable to behave in a whole bunch of ways as a man that were totally acceptable 40 years ago, 20 years ago. And we've outlawed those, some of them legally, some of them culturally through shame. And that's really good. So I want to say that preface it to say a lot of what feels strident in the culture or or what feels hostile or like you can't come in is like actually people standing up for themselves Mm -hmm. and actually saying like, no woman ever again should be in a meeting feels like that, right? No black person should ever again be in a classroom where their experience is kind of degraded in that way. like we can build, we can insist on we can demand a kind of society in which I like just doesn't have to happen and a lot of the mechanism legal formal mechanisms we have to ensure that don't really work in that way, and things like shame and social sanction and you know they're powerful and I, I just want to say that to say. I have respect for why the culture has gone a little bit too far in that direction. And I am a beneficiary as a brown person who suffered a lot from like racial bullying when I was a child. There was no language, no vocabulary for what was happening to me. There is now an entire vocabulary, a little too late in my case, but available for my kids' generation, to say what those things are, to provide a language for calling them out. And I think that is good. And a very large caveat. I think what has gone wrong is not calling things out and saying they're bad or or insisting that people, gender people correct, all of that I like. My concern is that these movements that want to deliver that kind of world at scale for everyone have a vested interest in having a higher membership role tomorrow than they do today and today than they did yesterday. That is literally their purpose. That's it. It's the whole game. And sometimes these important instincts toward calling things out and saying that things are not okay and trying to protect people in the room from the historical or other behaviors of other people in the room, sometimes that tendency can go to such an extent that it agitates against what it takes to actually grow movements. Mm -hmm. That does not mean, in my opinion, that you say, okay, let's gendering people properly is not important. Or, okay, people should be able to talk over women at meetings because we don't want to lose the men. It does not mean that it does mean that we have to think about a very hard thing, a kind of walking and chewing gum thing, which is how do we hold very clear on these values about what makes women feel safe in a space or what makes trans people feel safe in a space or what makes Black people feel safe in a space and valued and, and protected and thriving while pulling in the next 5% of voters or citizens, the next 5% after that, each successive additional 5% is going to be less aware, less fully down with this program, maybe not clear what this program even is, not knowing these terms. The more you succeed in politics, in movements, the next 5% of people know less than the 5% before. And you're going to start getting to in successive waves, and you could talk about men, you could talk about white people, you could talk about white men, you could talk about older people, these are all very large groups of people who are somewhere in between, down with your program, and willing to break the country because they so oppose your program, who are figuring it out, who do feel like the correctness has gone too far, who do feel like the wokeness thing is out of hand, you know, I'm not validating that view because I don't agree with that view, but they feel that. They feel like suddenly there was a way to be a man before and now there's some new way that's required and they were never taught the new way. And like, what am I to do? And so I think a lot about what does it take to build the kind of movements that can hold certain standards and offer people the clarity that you are not going to be taught this way in this we don't. We stand for certain things and we stand against certain things, but be small e evangelical in their pursuit of souls, in their pursuit of new people, and in a way, have the self-confidence as spaces and movements to say, we know we are so good that we can bring you in here and we can educate you inside the tent. That's how good we are. We are not so insecure about our capacity to change minds that we need you to be fully baked for you to come in the tent, come in the tent. You're not gonna disrespect people here and we're not gonna stand for that. You're not gonna do this, that, and the other, but come in the tent because you were not raised with those ways of being a man because no one was in 1972. And you were not raised with those ideas of being a white person or even hearing the word whiteness maybe in your childhood. And you were not raised thinking of you know, ideas like universal health care in this country, because you grew up in the Cold War and those ideas were thought of being communist and very dangerous. No one arrives fully baked. And if movements that want to deliver justice and dignity for all people don't fundamentally orient themselves to the basic mathematical truth that if you don't have people who don't fully get it in your movement, your movement is too small. Right. The sign of a healthy movement is not everybody being down. The sign of a healthy movement is a whole lot of people in your movement who have no idea what the program is, but they just like being in your movement.
0: Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. O N E S K I N dot C O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's OneSkin dot C O, code Sharon.
3: Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
0: let's say just an average citizen is listening to this. By and large, most people are just like, I just work at my job. I'm a nurse. I work in an office. You know what I mean? Like so these are just like people without access to governmental power, by and large. What can somebody who is just going about their everyday life, like trying to put food on the table, making dinner for these kids who want to be fed every single night.
1: I know, <laughs> I have three. two of them. It's uh, <laughs> It's relentless.
0: 365 days a year they want to eat the foods what can we do to be the persuaders what can we do to make the pro-democracy movement more inclusive more welcoming more fun not everybody's role is to be out front on the stage that's not everybody's role. Yes, we need those people. Yes, we need those people to be compelling. We know those people to be dynamic. They, we want people who are worth following. Like all of that is absolutely true. But it also, in order like to have this sort of small e evangelism, it requires all of us to say to our friends, like, get in here. You belong over on this side of the line. Get in the tent and we'll we'll get you fixed up. We'll tell you what you need to know. What can the rest of us who are just trying to like? I'm just putting food on the table for these kids every night. What can we do?
1: You know, if if this was just a book for leaders and and campaigners, uh, I could have done it as an email. You know, (laughs) Um,
0: dear twelve people on yeah, dear twelve people who
1: can actually right (laughs) Uh, this book. And there's a reason it's called the Persuaders because I wanted to encourage every single reader, every nurse and teacher, and parent, and truck driver, and union member, and small business founder, to think of themselves as persuaders, and here's why. The evidence is actually quite clear that on most of these big issues, institutional voices have very limited persuasive power today. It just does not work for the New York Times and MSNBC To explain to people that QAnon is in fact not true, it just doesn't work. It literally reinforces the faith in QAnon that people have, that the New York Times and MSNBC Mm -hmm. would be saying, don't believe in QAnon. (laughs) What works is other people. What works is people in your community. And so I really wrote the book to encourage all of you to become persuaders in your own way. And I think it means just that idea of being a persuader. I think it, I wanted people to find ways of being brave and standing firm while reaching out. That's my take on it. I think that's what makes the book different. There's a lot of things about reaching out. There's a lot of like, you can go somewhere else for Kumbaya. Like this is not a book about just like, how do you, you know, roll over for the sake of pleasing other people and, making them you know this is a book about like right is better than wrong and and democracy is better than non-democracy and human rights are better than not having them and saving the planet is better than not saving it there there's truth there's reality there's better and worse kinds of societies but how do you as that nurse or teacher or truck driver how do you be brave about what you believe and stand firm in what you believe in the kind of future you want for your kids and reach out to that family member, reach out to people at work, reach out to people you may be unionizing with, reach out to people who may think differently from you at work. And what I have found from so many people I spoke to is that so many Americans now have family members who have become disinformation cult victims. This is one of the Top five issues on the minds of so many Americans yep. that just doesn't show up in media. It just doesn't show up because it's one of these chronic problems, like a kind of diabetes of, of the body politic that is just like a slow burning forever story that doesn't have like an acute flashpoint moment that we cover. But like one out of, you know, six or seven of us, one out of seven adults, probably is basically now a believer in like a permanent kind of durable conspiracy disinformation cult. Mm -hmm. I have a whole chapter in the Persuaders* about what you can do to help pull people like that out. And, you know, spoiler alert, it has to do with not trying to replace the thoughts that are in their head with your thoughts, but trying to displace the thoughts that are in their head. You're not trying to plant reality. You're trying to plant doubt. And part of how you do that is is playing up a sentiment that they have, which is the desire not to be anybody's fool, and building that up so it can compete against the other part of them that has fallen prey to a cult, which is the part of all of us that wants the world to make easy sense. Mm -hmm. And cult victims are people whose desire for the world to make easy sense is currently routing their desire not to be someone's fool. And you can play up that latter desire. And there's evidence about how how you can do it, strategies for how you can do it, that I write about in the book. I write about people who are doing an incredible experiment called deep canvassing, which every single citizen listening to this can go do right now. You sign up for a few hours of training and you don't have to be a fancy political operative or anything else. You go door to door in your community lovingly talking your fellow citizens through issues that you care about, right? This is not traditional phone banking for a candidate you might've done. It's not calling your senator. It is going and doing long, deep, substantive conversations on the door that try to surface the complex intuitions that a lot of people have on these issues and try to help people wrestle with Their view, for example, that the border should be strong and their view that everyone deserves a dignified life. And it is an incredible experience, an experiment. Uh, I got to go see it up close and experience it up close in Arizona and, and just saw the remarkable power of this. This is something everyone can do. And I think it'll make you more effective in your work life. I think it'll make you more effective in your civic life. It might even make you more persuasive with your children, which is, of course, the hardest problem of all. And I think, look, this book is for everyone who has spent the last many years despairing, shaking your fists at the TV, feeling powerless. It's for everyone who has gotten tired of like all these detours of like waiting for some investigations that are never going to you know, do anything or waiting for some prosecutor to do something or waiting for some kind of miracle to strike down the forces of of darkness. The only way we are gonna get the country we deserve, that you're gonna get the healthcare you deserve, that you're gonna get the kind of schools your kids deserve, that you're gonna get the kind of housing policy that would allow you to be able to afford the kind of homes your parents could afford. The only way we're gonna get those things, we're gonna have nice things in this country, is if we insist on building a bigger we and every single person listening to this, not just outsourcing it to the top, to the leaders, every single person listening to this aspires to become a persuader themselves, talks those cousins, those coworkers, those community members, those neighbors, talks them through their conflicts, talks them through their contradictions and has the patience to say, I get that you don't like this new history teaching that your kids are getting. But here's why my kid's life has gotten so much better once this country became a lot more conscious of difference in recent years. I get that this pronouns thing is confusing to you, but here's why we can build an extraordinary kind of society of a kind that would shame our ancestors in retrospect in their narrowness if we can make people a little more comfortable in the spaces they operate in with not actually that much effort. I think we sometimes forget whether on climate or on some of this social and cultural stuff or on inclusion, on race. We are actually trying to do a lot. We're actually trying to put people through a lot. Like America is not in the situation it is right now for no reason. I think actually Many of us on the pro-democracy side completely fail to level with people about this. Like we are actually asking people to change the way they live a lot, right? Use new fuels, participate in new economy. Like, oh, sorry, you're a man in North Carolina? Uh, you used to make furniture as the main thing people in your town did. Uh, Sorry, we're signing permanent normal trade relations with China, which now means no man in your community will ever make anything again. Uh, The kind of education that people got in your community is no longer valid as of uh, this evening. And uh, good luck. We have upended gender relations, the understanding of what gender is. We've upended who people get to love and what the family looks like. We've had the rise of a country in China that has changed every corner of the planet and changed our own economy and everything else. We've had a pandemic that has just totally upended assumptions about work and what work is and so much around that. We've had demographic changes that are turning this country into a superpower of color, a majority minority country within your and my lifetimes of a kind that has never been done by a superpower that is that is choosing democratically to open itself to be a country made of all the world, a country made of all the other countries, and so we are falling on our face right now because we are jumping high we're attempting to build an awesome kind of country, and we can 't just as a pro democracy movement we can 't just skip to the problems we can 't just skip to the backlash it 's just a backlash it 's not a frontlash it's not a movement of the future we are up against we are up against a backlash because of how much We have successfully changed to make this society more open to more experiences, more kinds of love, more kinds of identity, more kinds of origin. And if we remember that, then I think it's going to be possible to say, we have to sell that vision to people who are skeptical of it. We're going to have to walk a lot of people through the psychological transitions we are demanding of them. Our position cannot be to stand at the end of history and be mad that people are tardy. And I think it's going to be an extraordinary era ahead. And I mean that. It doesn't sound like that most of the days you look at the news. But I actually think we are on the verge of building a kind of country that's never existed. And I think we can do it. And I think we can do it if we learn again to persuade.
0: Mm, The perfect way to end this. We are on the precipice of something that has never existed before. The history of time. We have the ability to then be the country that all others will look to for inspiration. But it cannot be the job of 535 people in the marble halls of the Capitol. Cannot be the job of bureaucrats. Cannot be the job, the people at your city council. It is all of our jobs. It is up to each and every one of us. And if that is the future that we want, we all have to work for it. This is our country. It's not, It doesn't belong to somebody else. In the words of Ken Burns, there is no them. There is only us. And it's all of our jobs to prevent those dark forces of authoritarianism, of tyranny, of fascism from taking root in the hearts and minds of our children and our neighbors. And it's all of our jobs to invite people in to be part of us. I just love it. And I loved, I loved your book and tell everybody where they can find you online, where they can sign up for your newsletter, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, right now, the the Persuaders book it can be found everywhere books are sold, as they say. And it's, <laughs> it's an e-book. It's a print book. It's an audio book. So find it in whatever form is most comfortable, comfortable for you and, and tell me what you think about it. And you can do that by uh, connecting with me on Twitter. My handle is Anand Writes, AnandWrites, A-N-A-N-D-W-R-I-T-E-S, because that's what I do. And uh, I also have a newsletter called The Inc. It's the ink, Very simple. And that's another place for kind of longer form reflections, uh, interviews, and a good place to just keep up with, with my work and this conversation that I'm trying to have.
2: Mm,
0: thank you so much for being here. today. It's just truly delightful.
1: Thank you for your interest and, and, and for the work you do. I, I, I wish you great success with this.
0: Mm, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Here's Where It Gets Interesting. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. If you enjoyed this episode, would you consider leaving us a rating or a review or sharing a link to it on your social media? All of those things help podcasters out so much. Here's Where It Gets Interesting is written and researched by executive producer Heather Jackson. Our audio engineer is Jenny Snyder. And it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. See you again soon.